All right, so we've been in uh, the book of Colossians uh, for a number of weeks. We've actually only got a couple weeks left uh, in the series. Has this been good? Like refreshing? God has been really uh, teaching us some new things. Um, I've, I've sensed that for myself, and I, I hope that that's been true for you. Over the last couple weeks, though, uh, we've been focusing in, uh, really using what Paul has said uh, in chapter 3, really, uh, to focus in on our new identity and then how we live from that new identity uh, in, in various different ways. So two weeks ago, we talked about how, according to our new identity, we actually have the power to put sin to death. So before you come to know Jesus, there are things that are true of you, and, and the Bible says that we're actually enslaved to sin. We have no choice but to follow after sinful patterns and sinful desires. And some of those may look bad on the surface, things that we would label sin, and others of those things might be things that are deep within our heart that nobody ever sees, and yet they're problems because they keep us separated from God. And when we come to know Jesus, he forgives us of all of that stuff, and then he gives us actually the power to start defeating those things one by one as he works his life through us. And we can participate with him in that, um, and, we, and that's what we talked about. And then the last week, week two of this kind of mini-series has been uh, that we actually have now the power to live new lives according to this new identity too. So oftentimes um, we think of Christianity as just not doing bad stuff, right? Just keep yourself from doing all the bad things. As long as you don't do the bad things, you're on good terms with God. And God's going, no, 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 I didn't save you just to keep you from doing bad stuff. I saved you so that you'd get to live a new life. The same kind of life that Jesus enjoyed and he gives to you when he saved you and then reconciled you to the Father. And so you get access to that life in him and you can begin to live a life of compassion and mercy and justice and grace and love uh, for other people. Those things are accessible to you if you belong to Jesus. So we talked about what's necessary to actually do both of those things. And um, do you remember what that is? To actually experience real change. What's the key? Both to put sin to death as well as to live new lives. We, used the, we talked about the same thing as being what actually empowers us to do that. Do you remember what that was? Like, oh no, he's going into quiz mode. <laughs> it's a pretty simple answer too. Jesus, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> it's a Sunday school answer. Come on. What about Jesus. Yeah, you can't start this process unless you start step one, which is to actually come to know him. And then how do you, how do you see him actually start to change you? What do you need to do? Yield, yeah. And, and specifically, yield yourself to his message, right? So two weeks ago, Paul said, set your hearts and your minds on Jesus, on things above, because when you do, you'll actually be able to put sin to death. You remember that? So the more we focus on him and what's true about him and what's true of who he's made us to be, the more we'll actually be able to live out of that new identity. And then last week we talked about letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And the more that you let his word or his message dwell in your heart, the more you'll be able to live out of that new identity, that new truth about who you are. Well, here's the thing. It it works the same way when you consider Uh, who we are and how we operate in everyday living. Um, And so we're going to use the same process. You guys are okay with that, right? So 
repetition is a, is a good thing as a, a teaching tool, right? Um, so does anybody remember what the four questions were that we talked about? There were four key questions that we used to help us to dwell on the message of, our, of Christ or to, to set our minds on things above. Do you remember what goes up here? It's kind of the fruit of our tree. Remember? Well, yeah, we listed all the things, but the question was, what do we do? Yeah, I know, I practiced all week making a better tree. <laughs> so I'm going to try to uh, press darker, also, but also there are, there are a lot of chairs up here too, if you can't see in the back. Just want a gentle reminder. What was, how about next? What was next? Yeah, who am I? And then what has he done? So who am I? What's my identity? And then what has God done? And what we've said is, everything that appears on our tree up here, whether it's good or bad, is a product of these three questions. So what you do in your life, how you treat other people, how you think about yourself, all of those things are a product of who you see yourself to be, your identity, which is a product of what you believe God has done for you or not done for you, which is a product of who you believe God is at the moment. So every action that you do is, is directly related to who you believe God is. So if you're able to be compassionate for other people, you probably believe that you've been given compassion by the Father. And if, but if you're not, if you're primarily self-seeking and self-centered in the way that you live, you probably think that God has left you on your own to be selfish, therefore you must be selfish and you live out of that new identity. So in order for us to change this, we need to change these questions. That's what repentance and faith are all about. Yeah. Yeah. It does, right? Because all of us, regardless of who we are, what our background has been, or what we claim to be kind of our major faith, believe things about God. Everyone that you encounter, everyone that you interact with in your family and at work and your neighborhood, they believe something about God. They may believe he doesn't exist at all, but that's still a belief about God. Yeah, so if that's our belief about who God is, that he kind of created the universe, set it in motion, let things go on their merry way, but he's not very involved in everyday life, then you, about what God has done, you believe that he's left it primarily up to human beings to make their own way in life. It's primarily our responsibility and our task, and if we fail at it, then God is there to judge us for our failure, not to pick us up when we fail. And so based on that, what do we believe about ourselves? We have a lot of work to do, and we better darn get it right too, because if we don't get it right, what is God going to do? He's going to punish us for not getting it right. So basically God is standing back and going, I gave you all the tools, I gave you everything that you needed, and you chose not to do them because you chose not to live and what I've given you, I'm going to condemn you for it. And so we live lives of condemnation, which probably means that we're self-condemning in the way that we live up to our own actions. And when we fail, we feel terrible about ourselves, and we can't pick ourselves up off the floor, and we judge ourselves, and we say how bad we are. And then we probably, if we're honest with ourselves, we do that with other people too. Yeah, and we may do that with God. And so we flip the whole thing on his head, and we go back to God, how could you have done this to me? Why did you do this to me? Because we see him as a con condemning judge rather than a loving father who's trying to teach us and bring us back into relationship with him.
Okay, everybody has a belief about God, and that influences the way that we live. So we need to apply that to something else uh, this morning as we progress. So we talked about how to apply that to sin. We talked about how to apply that to um, the good things that we aspire to kind of doing and the change that we want to see in our lives. But also we want to apply that to our roles in terms of how we live our everyday lives in community with other people. All of you have a role. You know that about yourself, right? You play a certain role in life. Uh, it might be the role of a father or a mother. It might be the role of a husband or a wife. It might be the role of a single person or a friend. It might be the role of a, a child. It might be the role of somebody who's in authority over other people, like in a workplace environment. Or it might be the, the role of being under someone else's authority. How many of you have bosses? Almost everybody. Good. So this will apply to you. But what, this is important just to, to mention again that this is not a formula that you just plug and play and, and you just continue to just do this like a factory you know, in, your li- in your own life. Last week I said that these are like training wheels to teach you how to dwell on the message of Christ ri- richly. But we're not meant to just go, you know, this is a tool that I use and I diagnose everyone around me and I constantly diagnose myself. Hopefully what we're teaching you is to get past the diagram so that you can start to do this naturally. That's called fluency. How many of you have ever learned a different language before? Trying, right? (laughs) Yeah. You use all kinds of tools and techniques and methods, and you probably have a program in which you do it, but the, the program is not there to always be there. It's not like if you want to speak French, you go into France and you pull out your computer and you go, well... Rosetta Stone says this, so I must say this. No, the point is to actually be able to put the computer away and be fluent in the new language, right? So hopefully what we're teaching you is to use a tool to make you fluent in the gospel. How to speak it to yourself, how to see whether it's there or not in other people, all of those things. So, so how do we do that? Um, well, today what we're going to talk about is at the end of chapter 3, Paul wants... Uh, the church here to see how they begin to turn their roles over to Jesus and to live from a new identity when it comes to that. So your roles in terms of your family and your work and being in society. So how do you live as a husband or a wife or a parent or a child, etc., and turn yourself over to the gospel to start to live out of it rather than out of a different identity? Um, and so we're going to continue to use this to do that. Um, and one of the main things that we have to know is that we want to make sure that we actually live out our role, which would be up here, out of our identity and not to confuse those things. Because here's what happens. This is one of the main dangers that we have in our society is that we think that our role is our identity. Do you know what I mean by that? We, we, we play a role in our lives But that role becomes so central to who we are as a person that if anything gets tampered about that role, we're a complete mess, right? So what are some of the roles that we play? We've mentioned a few already. Mother, father, children, yep. Yeah, your career. And so that becomes central to our role. What do you think is the main danger when our role actually gets confused with our identity? How many of you have had kids grow up and, and leave the house? 
That's a hard thing, right? It's <laughs> Thank you for being honest. As you're surrounded by all your kids. <laughs> Let me ask this. What happens if your, if your role as a mom has become synonymous with your identity as a person when your kids leave the house and they're no longer right next door or in your own home? The thing that we look to as our primary source of our identity to tell us who we are and why we're valuable in the world is now not there to give us the affirmation that we've been looking to to get it. And what happens to you when that thing is no longer there to give you the affirmation and the thing that you most want? You completely turn bitter. Bitter against your children for leaving you alone. Bitter against your spouse because they're not as good a companion as you thought they should be during that process of the kids leaving the home. Bitter at society for the way that jobs take people in different directions and ways. You may be bitter at the government because it doesn't have jobs locally for your kids to stay around and just be kids the rest of your life. I mean, you end up taking it out on everyone, including yourself, right? That's how you know it's an idol. And Paul's going, I want to make sure that you understand that Jesus and God wants your identity to be grounded in something that's far more secure than your role. And yet our world has no concept of this. Because our role is completely who we are. We base our identity on what we do. Rather than on who God is and what He's done for us. See, if if our identity isn't based on something more sure, more grounded, then it will lead us to chaos, it will lead us to bitterness, it will lead us to hatred, it will lead us to insecurity, to all kinds of things. Yeah, ministry is really good at confusing your identity. It is. That's why, uh, in terms of being a, a leader within the church, it's incredibly important to be grounded in these two things because ministry itself is a doing action. And you can start to see your identity wrapped up in that. And so, how do I know who I am? Well, I'm a pastor, and other people, you know, uh, look to me to give advice and wisdom in their lives. But the problem is, when I when I run out of my own wisdom, or when I no longer function as a pastor, who am I? Well, I better sure be grounded in these other things that have nothing to do with my pastoring if I'm going to continue to pastor as I should. Ministry will do that. Um, It'll lead you to, to put your identity in other things. And you don't have to be a professional pastor for that to happen. All you need to do is have somebody affirm you in your gift and not connect that gift to what God has done in your life. Because then you'll, you'll say, well, I'm the spiritual one. I'm the one that prays for everybody else. Or I'm the one that everyone seems to come to me for advice when they're in trouble. And you build your identity off what you do. And then the day that nobody comes and asks your advice for something, you go, well, who am I? I mean, it could work on... I'm, one of the main areas that's a potential area for, for problems is the worship team because they're, they're the ones that are most visible to the rest of the body and everyone affirms their gifts because they see them every week. So who am I? I'm a worship leader or I'm a guitarist or I'm whatever. This is a major um, area of potential problem in people's lives. So we as a church must be grounded in these things in order for us to do this well. Because then the day that you're not asked to serve in the worship team or whatever the case might be, if you're not grounded in these things, you'll be a complete wreck. 
Um, so Paul's going to highlight several roles and then talk about the implications of those things. And here's the problem. Well, oftentimes when we get to this point in our Bibles, when Paul starts to work out the implications of the gospel and how we live, we do this thing where we completely forget everything that's gone before. We see all these rules, and then we think it's about living up to those rules to either avoid punishment or gain a reward. That's not what's going on here. Sometimes we get to the, to the, like the doing part of every book of the Bible, and then we completely toss out the gospel, and we go, oh, well, now it's about loving people. And if I don't love people, then it says something about me. Or if, I, if I'm not compassionate with others, then what does that say about me? And then we guilt ourselves into those things rather than relying on the gospel for them. So please don't see it that way. That's not what Paul's doing. He wants to completely understand that we're working out the implications of the gospel in everyday life, and particularly in the roles that we play. So what are those things? Let's look at um, Colossians 3, verse 8. And here's the other thing, too. We might not always like the implications. I'll just say that on the front end, especially with the first verse. We'll talk about what it means, but wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. I hear all this snickering going on. What's going on out there? Fathers, do not embitter your children or or do not provoke them to be resentful or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you to curry their favor. Don't, uh, the other way to say that is don't live as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. Working is for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will re- be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide for your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. So what are the roles that he talks about? There are six of them. There are wives, children. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, you notice the men get two commands and the women get one. There's a reason for that. Yeah, slaves and masters. So you think, That doesn't apply to us today, right? Yeah, exactly. So so those uh, under authority and those over, that should pretty much cover everyone, right? Which one should we take first? Under authority? Okay. All right. So what does it say about us living under the authority of other people? How many of you uh, work under the authority of another person, have a boss? Okay, just a lot of people in the what does it say that we should do? What does Paul mention? Yeah, o- obey your earthly masters. Follow their commands. Um, and, and do it in what kind of way? With reverence to the Lord. Yeah, whether or not he's watching. With your whole heart, with your whole self. Everything that's within you. Why wouldn't you do that? You don't like the boss. Yeah, he's not living it up to his end of the bargain. This work is, it doesn't provide me with the respect or the recognition or the whatever that I think it should. Yeah, I'm the only one that does the work around here. Everyone else falls short. I would work really hard at it if it was work that made a difference. But since it's not work that makes a difference in my life or anyone else's life, why should I put my whole heart into it? What, is, what do you think that's saying, all the things that you've just said, about what we believe our identity to be? We're lazy, okay? 
which might be true, dependent on others. Good. So what's a way to say that in terms of your identity? Selfish? Self-serving? Judgmental. Why judgmental? So I'm better than others. I have to look out for number one. So I'm unprotected. What do you think that's saying about what God has done? If that's who you believe who you are? He's abandoned me. Yeah, he doesn't know what he's doing. How about this? He doesn't see. What's that saying about who he is? Yeah, maybe God's just as lazy as I am. God must cut corners too. What else? Yeah, he doesn't really care about me enough to have a role. Or that he only cares about the big stuff. He doesn't really care about the day-to-day things. Nor does he see those things. So let me ask you, this is kind of the big question, is that who God really is? But is that who we believe him to be if we're having trouble living under the authority of others? What's actually true about who God is? That particularly for this situation of, of living under the authority of a boss, maybe that you don't like uh, or that you believe uh, shouldn't be over you because you're really better than him, he specializes in creating good from evil. Right. So it's not just about us being in the situation, but he's a teacher. Yeah, he is the true king. The other way to say that is he is glorious. His opinion matters most. That's what, so the, the word glory means to have the most weight over and above everything. So if you th- figure a scale, to be glorious over everything means that the scale is always tipped in his direction. His opinion matters most. His name should be lifted above every name, right? So it's about his uh, reputation, not our reputation. How do we know that? How do we know these things about who God is? This is where the Christian story comes into play, right? How do we know? Yeah, so we know that God cares because he gave his best. It doesn't matter what position you're in. You could be, I I don't know, I mean, think of the lowest position you could possibly think of. Toilet scrubber. Um, One of my roommates in college, he had a job for a while when he was in high school as a lab rat killer. (laughs) It was his job to clean the lab after all the experiments were done and to take all the, the... rats and the mice that hadn't died in the experiments and go out and take care of them. I can't think of a, be- a worse job than that. <laughs> I said, so what did that do for your identity? He goes, I constantly had to be reminding myself of these things. Otherwise, I'd be a wreck. You'd be thinking about that one for a while, right? How do we know that he's able to create good in our lives, even from the most evil of situations? So God has given you experiences to be able to know that. And the more that you recognize those experiences as creating good from evil, the more you'll recognize them in the future, right? As God has done in the past, so will he do in the future. How do we know that from his story, that he creates good out of evil? does it over and over and over again. And what's the primary way? I mean, what's the way that we see it over and above every single way that he's ever done it? Can you imagine a more evil situation? God's own son is hanging, being crucified for the sins of humanity on a cross. The one that everybody went, he is going to be our king and our Messiah. He was the one that we were following after for three years, and he is dying on a cross. He is being mocked and spit upon and scorned and every kind of shame. He's literally naked, hanging on a cross, being shamed with all of our shame. How can it get worse than that? Isn't he the promised one that God was going to send to our lives to make everything better? And now look at him. It doesn't get much worse than that, right? Looking at Jesus, the Son of God, hanging on a cross, going, this is as evil as it gets. How in the world are things going to get better? And then three days later, what happens? Jesus rises from the dead, conquering sin and Satan and death, and says, I will create a kingdom now in your own hearts, and I will live with you forever by my Spirit. It can't get better than that. 
If God can do that, if He can create that kind of good for you in a very personal way, give you salvation and life and reconciliation with Him forever and ever, do you think that He can create good from the evil that you're experiencing at your job? Yes! And if you don't believe it, go back to the story that tells you He could do that. Because the more that you go back to that story, the more that you ground yourself in it, the more that you'll be able to see your, cir- your, your present circumstances in light of that greater story, rather than as some anomaly from it. Does that make sense? All right, how do we know that He's present? After He rose from the dead, He said, I will give you My Spirit and I'll never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you for the end. I'm going to send My Spirit to come and live in your hearts so that you'll always know. In fact, I have more to tell you about Myself. I have more to tell you about who you are than I can even tell you in three years. So how do we know He's present? Because He's given us the Spirit to communicate that to us every single day. And at every moment when we forget that He's present in our life, when we forget that we're loved, we forget that He's with us, we have the Spirit there just to remind us in that moment and whisper to our hearts, I have not forgotten you. I have not forsaken you. I am still with you. I have a plan for you. I'm with you. How do we know that He's the true King? That, he's a, that His opinion matters more than every other opinion? Even your bosses. How do we know? So you can live your life going, if, if I'm going to do my work well, I need to get the approval and the admonition of my boss. And if I don't get it, I'm not going to work well. What you're really saying to yourself is, I'm not living under the true king. You're saying, I have no king but my boss. His opinion is what matters. His, everything that he says to me or what he doesn't say to me is what I get my true opinion of myself and my self-worth from. But we know that's not true. You have a different king, a better king, who is above that king in your life. And he is showering you with affection. He is, he is saying, my opinion of you is what matters, and my opinion of you is that you're my chosen and loved and beloved son and daughter. So work as if you're working in the family business, no matter who your earthly king is. I mean, can you imagine Paul saying this to slaves? People who had to sell themselves into slavery in order to, to get themselves out of financial bondage, they really just sell their bodies to someone regardless of whether, how that person is going to treat them or not. And they have absolutely no say over their life. And Paul is saying, don't live your life according to the king that you can see. Live your life according to the king that you cannot see because his opinion is what makes you who you are. You see how that works? Incredibly important for those under authority because then who are we? If that is our king, who are we? Yeah, we're his citizens. We live by his rules. We live under his authority regardless of the rules that go on in your workplace. And so that means even if in your work environment you're being asked to do things that you know are right, you can take a stand because you have a greater king than the one who's there in the office. Regardless of the consequences that might come to you under the authority of someone else, you know that you can live according to your good king that even if you're present king says you can no longer work here because of your conduct because that's not the way things go here you can say i don't need to work here because that is not my identity i have a king who will take care of me i have a king who will love me and protect me and serve me with his whole life because he's proven that he can do that over and over and over again if he can do it for the my afterlife into eternity he can certainly do it today do we believe that
See, that'll lead us to live under authority differently than we would otherwise, right? Let's try to do this with maybe a, one or two more. What should we do next? Husbands? Kids? All right, kids. How many of you are kids of someone? What does it say that we're to do as children? Obey your parents in everything. Man, not in everything. Why wouldn't you want to obey your parents, kids? They could be wrong. Oh, are you sure? Yeah, they don't really understand who I am. So I'm, what does that say about me? That means I'm misunderstood, right? Rebellious. And we might get our identity from the fact that we're rebellious kids. That might become a badge of honor, especially among our friends. I'm the one who disobeys with my parents and gets away with it. That'll get you some status, won't it? I don't need to live under their authority. I have my own authority. And their authority isn't good anyway. If I could make the rules, life would go much better. So I'm, I'm dependent on the, the uh, provision of my parents, but uh, at the expense of the rules. So being under the authority of my parents is a really bad thing. I'm hearing from a lot of parents. How about kids? I'm being led in the wrong direction. What do those things say about what you think God is up to? If he had just given me better parents that understand me better, then I'd be able to live under those rules, whatever those rules might be. But they'd be better rules than the ones I've gotten. What else do we think that God has done if we are saying, I don't need to live under authority? Yeah. Yeah, so sometimes their authority uh, isn't something to be lived under, right? Because it, that's actually doing damage. Here's the thing, though. Is Paul just concerned about kids or is he concerned about moms and dads too? Do you think he would want you to live under the authority of someone if it enables them not to live in the identity that they were saved and created for? No. So we're not advocating that kids just obey their parents and take abuse from their parents. We're not advocating child abuse because that's actually enabling the parents to live in such a way that's against the identity that God has called them to as parents. So it's not helping mom and dad either if the kids are being allowed to do that, right? But we may not believe that, at least on the front end, right? That God would do that for us. So if we can't live under the authority of the parents, what we're really saying is God has given me parents that don't treat me this way because he does not love me, because he has abandoned me, because he doesn't want my best. He doesn't want good for me. What else are we saying about God when we believe that? I mean, a lot of the things that we said before, right? That he doesn't see us, that he doesn't care for us, that he doesn't really know our pain, or that he doesn't understand where we're coming from as children. All of us are influenced in terms of who we see God to be by how our parents have. So we're not, so we're not condemning kids for not seeing God accurately, but we are saying there, there needs to be a replacement that happens for their understanding of who God is with who he really is, right? So who is God really? Yeah, he provides for his children, so that would be it. Yeah, what, what is the truth of who God is? He isn't disconnected. He's actually a loving father, right? He's the best father that there ever was. He's the father that we were all intended to have, regardless of who our earthly father was. What else is true about who God is? In fact, he lifts up the least of these. You ever know that about, about God's story? Even at the very beginning in Genesis, when you see what God is up to, he, uh, he, he always chooses the younger son and says, you're, I'm going to lift you up since you're the lowest one. 
He cares for the lost and the lonely. He cares for the forgotten ones. He's an adopter of kids. How do we know that that's true? All those things that you just said. How do we know that he's, he, he's into the adoption business? He gave his own son, the, the, the only rightful son that there was in his family. He gave up that son to welcome us and adopt us who weren't part of his family in. And do you know the, the, the pain that that caused the father to do that for you? To welcome you in? To make you his? And yet he did it with joy and gladness to accomplish what he accomplished by bringing you into his family. And not, not just a child that's been around for 5, 10, 15 years. The child that you've enjoyed intimate, loving community with for an eternity. Imagine you growing with your child. Imagine children growing in relationship with your mom and dad. And just every year for eternity, growing in your love for the other person to the fact where you're just completely inseparable and everything that you do is a reflection of your relationship with the other person and your, your, everything is about the, the other person and your relationship to them. And then you're ripped from that relationship so that you can welcome others in. And yet he was willing to suffer that separation in order to welcome in those that were separated. That's amazing, isn't it? I mean, he must love us as children a whole lot if he was willing to do that. What else? So over here, we're essentially saying God only provides for me sometimes in certain circumstances, but he doesn't provide for me at every moment. And really what we need to understand is that God does not change. He is the same today. He's the same yesterday. He's the same tomorrow and forever. And if his love for you was enough to provide for you at some moments, since God changes, you know that he can provide for you in every moment. And so you may go, some of those moments I see and I understand, some of those moments I don't understand, and yet I can walk by faith because I know you do not change. So if that's true, then who are we? If that's what our Father's like, our Heavenly Father does not play favorites. Even if our earthly Father did, our Heavenly Father does not. He, gave a, he gives equally to his children. And he gave equally to his children. We're valued. Yeah. We have real worth in the eyes of the Father. And even now, like think of, of us um, taking hold of this new life and being adopted into God's family. Now God sees us through Jesus. So when he looks at us, he doesn't just see the rebellious child that we were before we came to knew, know him. He sees us as if we were Jesus. All of the 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 ways that Jesus obeyed the Father when we did not, all the ways that he, he followed through when we failed, everything that earns uh, for us God's favor on our behalf, he now sees you in that light today. He's not condemning you for things that you did wrong. He's not condemning you for the ways that you failed to live up to this new identity. He sees you as, as if you were Jesus Christ who earned everything for yourself, even though you did not. And so he's saying, just, just as he said to Jesus at his baptism, this is my son who I love and whom I'm well pleased. He's saying that to you today. This is my son. This is my daughter. I am well pleased with them. Can you, I just hope you can receive that. 
Because that will actually lead you to live differently. What else is true about us? He's interested in the details. And we know that by, actually, it's funny, we know that he's interested in the details through the commands that he gives us. What do we know about our Heavenly Father in terms of the way that he gives rules and commands? What is the purpose of those things? It's actually to lead us to live the kinds of lives that he intended for us. It's to lead us into freedom, not away from it. And we know that because he's the giver of life. He's the one who created life in the first place and he knows how it works best. And then he sends his son into the world who lives life best by following his father's commands at every single moment and lives a fuller life in 33 years than most of us live an entire lifetime. He lives fuller and more complete than, than most of us have ever experienced because he never disobeys his father. And we look at him and we go, wow, that's the way that life was intended to work. So we must know that God creates rules not to condemn us and lead us away from freedom, but actually to lead us towards freedom. Pretty amazing, right? That God would do that. So how would we live if we knew that about ourselves? Even in relationship to our earthly parents. You know what I kind of think of is um, regardless of what our earthly fathers have been to us, we can forgive them because we know we've been forgiven. We can treat them as if they're unreconciled children of the Father who wants them to understand the same kind of reconciliation and love that we've been given, regardless of how they've acted towards us. We can actually forgive them fully and freely and then treat them as loved children of God, even if they've been bad parents. That's, that's radical, Right? And yet I think in the gospel, it's what we're given the power to do. Um, I hope you see that absolutely everything, I wish we could get to more, but we just can't. Thank you, Aaron. Absolutely every role that we have is related to our identity. And we either live out that role according to our identity, or we make the role our identity. And whenever we make the role our identity, we live on this side of the board. It happens every single time. And when our identity is actually rooted in who God is and what he's done, and we're seeing him for who he actually is and what he's actually done, then we have a new identity that leads us to live out our role the way that God intended for us and not the the way that maybe we have been before. Here's the thing I've learned about all this, though. Even if you haven't lived out your identity the way that you should, God still forgives you for that. Because there is one who lived out his identity perfectly, in Jesus. He's the only one to ever do it. And in him, we actually receive forgiveness of all the ways that we haven't lived out ours. And so please know that today. We're actually going to come to the tables and thank God for that. Um, I was just realizing this week, and I, I, I'd get into it if I could, all the ways that I've failed just in the area of husband. I'm thinking, man, if I had lived out my role according to my identity, I wouldn't hurt my wife and my family or... or pushed on to them some things that shouldn't have been on their plate but should have been on mine because I put them on Jesus' shoulders and not my own. You know, I think I grieved the Father in the way that I lived as a husband this week. And so I'm in the same place of need as you are, as we all are, and saying we need to come to him and thank him that we, regardless of how we failed at this this week, we're still under his grace. We're still his children. We, get, we still get to come to his throne room and into his presence and say, Dad, forgive me. And so we're going to do that together. Let's pray.